Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Suki Finn. She's a lecturer in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London. Her research spans the areas of metametaphysics, the metaphysics of pregnancy, the epistemology of logic, feminist and queer theory, and uh, today we're going to talk about those topics and also uh, philosophy of love. She is the editor of Women of Ideas, published with Oxford University Press, which is a selection of interviews with women from Philosophy Bites. So, Dr. Finn, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great. So, let's start with a bit of epistemology of logic. So, what is it about and what kinds of questions does it deal with? Sure. So... Um, epistemology on its own is considered the study of knowledge and logic on its own I guess it's considered more of a study of reasoning and so at the intersection of those two areas where you have the epistemology of logic that's going to be asking questions like how do we know logical truths how can we justify logical rules um, and the questions that I've been interested in in the epistemology of logic are with respect to how and whether we can rationally choose to follow or adopt a logical system or a logical role. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, what is rationality then from a philosophical perspective or from the perspective of epistemology of logic? Yeah, so the word rationality it's used in very many different ways. I suppose in philosophy in particular, it's the process of rationalising is considered to be a specifically human trait. It's kind of what sets humans apart from other animals. And to be rational is for your actions to conform to your beliefs in certain ways, um, where you arrive at your beliefs through some sort of reasoning. Um, and so that's kind of what we mean by uh, rationality or being rational in philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is the relationship between logic and rationality? Because uh, I, I mean, at least I myself never got the sense that they were both the same thing or are they? Yeah, you're, you're right. I think that they're not the same thing, um, but they, uh, they interact with each other in, in very interesting ways. Um, the way that I like to think about the distinction is that ra if rationalising is the process of reasoning, then what logic is, is a system that underwrites that reasoning and formalises that reasoning. Um, so that's how I like to split them up in terms of their levels, if you like. <laughs> Okay, so I guess that some of these will also apply to the next topic, at least to some extent. Uh, what is the philosophy of love? <laughs> yeah, so um, I've thought about philosophy of love, I suppose, from the perspective of uh, the epistemology of love and the rationality of love. But there are many different things that you can philosophize about with respect to love. You can ask about um, the connection between love and value. You can ask about the causes of love, the effects of love, um, and of course, like the metaphysical question of what love is, um, 
whether it's an emotion, um, whether it's an appraisal or a bestowal, um, whether it's irrational or unjustified. Um, all of those sorts of questions come up in the philosophy of love, um, where I suppose my interest has been more with respect to um, the epistemology of it, whether it's justified and rational. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but how would you define love from a philosophical perspective? Because, I mean, since I have lots of scientists on the show and particularly people who deal with things from an evolutionary perspective, I guess that if I were to ask them what is love, they would just tell me that it's basically an evolved system or an evolved feeling to propel you to have sex with someone and reproduce <laughs> and, and that's it. So, uh, yeah, but how would you define it? Um, well, I think that these sort of reductionist accounts, like the one maybe you're describing, where yeah. we take an emotion and reduce it down to a brain states, like some fibers firing in certain directions in the brain. I don't think that really captures maybe what we mean when we uh, talk about the feeling of love. There's a phenomenology of it. There's, a, there's the phenomenon of love and how it feels from a certain perspective, the experience of it. And um, describing things in um, those reductionist terms about brain states I'm not sure fully capture um, what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, the experience of love. Um, so I myself don't have a definition of what it is, um, but I think that I've tried to understand my own experiences of, of love through different analogies. Um, so it's a very nerdy way, I suppose, <laughs> of um, trying to get to grips with this strange feeling. Um, but it certainly helped me to think about it through analogies with like asp other aspects of philosophy that I do. Mm -hmm. So I think I read some of your articles on Ian, if I remember correctly, about yeah. love. And uh, it's interesting because in one of them, at least you talk about unconditional love. And I mean, <laughs> is it really a thing? Because... Uh, I mean, for many people, it doesn't seem to be so. Yeah, I think, like you say, it probably uh, depends on who you're asking. <laughs> um, so is there unconditional love? Well, I'm not sure about uh, whether there's the possibility of anything happening um, or occurring or being without any reason. So something occurring, um, having no reason for it whatsoever, I think might be a little bit strange. Um, so if unconditional love is something that is without reason, then maybe it's not possible. But there are different ways of understanding this term unconditional. It might not be so wrapped up in, in reason. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not sure really is the sure answer to to your question of whether there really is unconditional love, um, and maybe it's uh, at least a logical possibility, if not a metaphysical or physical possibility for some. <laughs> 
Yeah, because I, I mean, at least it seems that when whenever people love someone, it's because it's due to particular reasons, like, for example, particular traits that person has. And if, for example, something happens and suddenly that person no longer has those traits or the person changes, then, I mean, at least it seems to make sense for the person to stop loving her or something like that. I mean, what do you think about it? Yeah, so what you've described there is um, known as the bestowal view of love, the, um, sorry, the appraisal view of love, where your love is in response to someone's features or something. So um, you have reasons for your love that are uh, where your love is appraising someone's value and in appraising that value, you therefore love love them in in response. And um, so that is one of the main uh, positions in the debate. The opposite position is the bestowal view, um, which um, instead of love appraising the value, it bestows the value on the object of love. So it's not that your love is responsive to um, the kind of features of the beloved, but rather in loving someone, you then see the value in them. And so love okay. creates the value. So there's this, this opposite view um, that considers uh, rather than loving for reasons in that sense, love kind of gives you reason um, because it allows, it bestows value onto the thing that you are projecting your love onto. Mm -hmm. can, can we understand love using Bayesian probability theory? <laughs> yes, you definitely read my Aeon article. No, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I wrote a, a piece for them. Um, it was meant to be like just a, a fun piece, making one of these analogies that I was saying about earlier that, to help me understand love or my experiences. I've kind of uh, made parallels with other areas of philosophy and one of them was Bayesian probability theory. So um, ordinarily, what Bayesian probability theory does is it helps us to understand how we update our belief in something based on information that we receive about it. And so I think maybe something similar could happen with love, that our feelings of love um, can be updated, um, changed, um, informed once we receive information about the object of our love. Um, and there's this interesting case in Bayesian probability theory um, which is when you have complete certainty in something. This is known as credence to the value of one. So if you have um, degrees of belief, that's what a credence is. It's a degree of uh, personal belief um, between zero, which is completely uncertain, like not, not going to happen, <laughs> and one, which is complete certainty. Um, the interesting case is when you have complete certainty in something, because once you have that strength of belief in having credence one in something, it's not then movable, but via a rational process 
of updating it on the basis of new information. It can't, it doesn't move, it's unwavering. And um, so making the analogy then with love, if you have um, such a strong love that's to the same degree of certainty, like one, um, then maybe that also is unwavering in the face of anything else. So I think that's uh, an interesting way for me at least to compare um, love with Bayesian probability theory. Mm -hmm. But do you think that uh, if people were to use Bayesian probability theory to, <laughs> I guess, decide to be in love with someone or not, uh, <laughs> when someone is in love, do they really have uh, access to accurate information or information that is accurate enough for them to use that kind of approach? Yeah, so I'm not sure that really uh, consciously my I am going through that sort of Bayesian <laughs> calculation in my head. I, I'm sure probably most people would agree that it's not something that um, we consciously do when weighing up like how to feel about someone. Well, they've got these qualities, so I feel more about them. They've got those qualities so I feel less about them or something I don't think that's how it works but maybe kind of subconsciously on some level we do alter our feelings on the basis of our experience of a person or what we think about them um, but when it comes to having accurate information about them in order to update <laughs> our feelings um, I'm not sure that the accuracy of the information is what's relevant here um, it's more about what you perceive to be accurate information so um what you're how you consider someone what you what you see in them um what you perceive of them it's that perception that is going to do the work rather than some magical link to how they really are because of course sometimes that is not available to you ever um so yeah, and maybe going back to this bestowal and appraisal distinction, maybe love, you know, sometimes can illuminate information about someone, illuminate the value in them. Um, but also maybe sometimes love can distort um, yeah. what, what what you're experiencing um, in a way that you're kind of blinded you know the whole phrase blinded by love um that you're not actually seeing what's going on so yeah there's this i think there's an interesting connection there between love and rationality with respect to um whether you can have the a rational response in in loving someone and to what extent your love is uh, appropriate, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, it would be really funny if someone were to really use Bayes' theorem to make decisions about love. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's very unromantic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, and again, because I read your AN articles, uh, is love like a game? I mean, can we compare it to poker, for example? Yeah, again, that was another analogy that I found to be like a fun way of thinking through experiences. So for me, at least um, when I was dating, the the chips that you have to play in a game of poker, 
felt a bit like the resources that you have to spend on a relationship. So you have a certain amount, <laughs> um, like already, and you then invest a certain amount based on whether you think it's a good situation or not, both in poker and in a relationship. Um, and you get dealt specific cards. You can't kind of choose your cards. You get dealt specific cards, just like you meet specific people. And then ideally, I suppose you get to choose to fold on those cards um, or fold on that person if you're not interested in continuing. Um, and if you are interested in continuing and you want to keep playing, <laughs> um, then you have to put in at least the same amount as the other players. You can't just float through the game or float through the relationship, simply just checking um, when someone else has raised the stakes. If they've raised the stakes, you have to you have to meet them there. Otherwise, um, you're you're out, I guess. So whether this is all a descriptive analogy with poker or a prescriptive account of how I think things ought to be, that's a, another question. But for me, I found some insight, like from considering how I navigated a game of poker with uh, in comparison to how I navigated. Uh, the dating scene so <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting so <laughs> does your approach to love answer questions like uh, if it's better to err on the side of trust or the side of caution distrust when it comes to love yeah well I think again with uh, the gambling thing it helps to make sense of that because of course when the higher the stakes are then the higher your win is, I guess. So that favours trust and favours putting in, investing what you can um, rather than being measly with it. <laughs> um, but also it's important to keep fallacies in mind and not fall into the traps of fallacies. For example, um, maybe just because things went v badly many times before, um, with your poker cards or <laughs> with your relationships, that doesn't mean that you're then overdue things going well the next time. So that's literally called the gambler's fallacy. Um, but also conversely, just because things went badly every single time before, that doesn't mean that they're destined to always go badly. That's um, thinking about the problem of induction, you know, just because things have always been a certain way doesn't mean it will continue that way and also sorry also with respect to thinking about sunken costs just because you've put in a certain amount of resources into a thing doesn't mean you have to continue doing so just because that's how you started you don't always have to uh, continue as you as you started because that might just be throwing good money at bad or putting in more resources into like more of your effort, more of your time um, into a relationship just because you've already spent so much on it. Um, you know, if something's bad, you you should get out of it, I think. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of the sunk cost fallacy. Exactly. It's the sunken cost fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> so changing topics now, uh, what is the metaphysics of pregnancy? Yeah, so that has that's more in line with um, 
research that I was doing more recently. Um, and that's the metaphysics of, preg metaphysics of pregnancy um, is something I suppose that's quite new to the scene of philosophy, but in other respects, there are parts of it that we're very familiar with. So for many, there's a this central question in human pregnancy with respect to the identity of the fetus. Um, so namely, whether the fetus is a person um, such that it has moral or legal status. That's, you know, a well-trodden path. People, people know about that question. Um, but for me and for those of us that worked with Elsaline Kingma um, on the BUMP project where BUMP is acronym for better understanding the metaphysics of pregnancy. It's a pretty pretty good acronym. Um, yeah. For for us on those on that project, the more interesting question was whether the fetus is a part of the gestator, um, whether gestator is whoever whatever is pregnant. Um, so yeah, whether the fetus is part of them or whether the fetus is contained inside of them without being a part of them. So the metaphysics of pregnancy, um, the area of it that I've focused on is, is that those latter questions rather than um, whether the fetus is a person. So uh, is the fetus part of the mother? Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was the big question of the project. And uh, even though I've spent a long time thinking about it, I still don't have a definitive answer. I'm not sure that it can be answered so simply with a yes or a no, um, because I'm inclined to thinking towards that it's not so simple as that. There are different definitions of what it takes to be a part of something. So it might depend on what account of parthood you are using. Um, and there are other factors that make a difference to whether that parthood relationship occurs or not. Um, you might think that parthood comes in degrees. It's not a matter of yes or no, completely yes or no. Um, and also parthood might change over time. It might be that at a certain time there's a parthood relationship, at another time there isn't a parthood relationship. So really, I think there are a lot of things getting in the way of providing an absolute yes or no answer to whether the fetus is a part of the gestator. Um, I think that on the other hand though, what is certain, at least to me, is that um, treating gestators or viewing gestators as having, being just sort of a container for a fetus where the fetus is just inside the gestator without any more level of intertwinement. That to me seems obviously false um, from the perspective of the biology and the phenomenology of it. And um, the only place that that seems to be more true is in our cultural understanding of it maybe. And some of the policies that we have with respect to pregnancy, at least seem to treat gestators in this way. And I don't, I don't think it ought to be that way. I think that we need to have a more nuanced understanding of the complexity of the intertwinement between the fetus and the gestator. Mm -hmm. Would answering this sort of question, like is the fetus a part of the mother, have any implications for uh, more ethical questions, like, for example, regarding abortion? 
Yes, so this is something that comes up a lot for um, for me and for those of us that have worked in this area, because almost instantly people want to know <laughs> yeah. about abortion. And again, I'm not sure that abortion should always be the focus. There is so much more to the experience of pregnancy and what goes on ethically regarding um, the medicalization of birth. Um, for example, um, than just thinking about abortion. But I think the reason that people are so caught up with wanting to know about abortion is because it's fetus-centred and fetus seems to have some super status um, over and above the gestator, which I think, again, it ought not be the case. But um, <laughs> turns out that, yeah, in many ways, people do regard the fetus as have, having this special status. So can metaphysics of pregnancy tell us about um, these ethical considerations? Are there ethical considerations that come out of it? I think not directly, but when your ethical stance presupposes a metaphysics, as it often is in the abortion debate, there are presuppositions about what the fetus is um, which are metaphysical claims, um, then of course, if you're using metaphysics to justify your argument towards an ethical conclusion, then a change to your metaphysics will result in a change to your ethical mm. conclusion. So um, if we want to base our ethics on uh, metaphysics, if we're doing that anyway, then I think we need to be clearer about what the metaphysical situation is. Um, so uh, a very clear example might be that the slogan, um, my body, my choice, for, with respect to being pro-choice in the abortion debates, if your body um, is not just about, uh, if that slogan is not just about the use of your body, but actually what is what constitutes your body, and we take the fetus to be a part of the gestator's body, then quite literally that slogan is true. If the fetus is a part of your body, then my body, my choice, it becomes your choice to do as you see fit <laughs> with respect to your body, the body part in question being the fetus part. So I think that there are ways in connecting the metaphysics to the ethics, although cautious, I think we have to be cautious in not just extrapolating directly um, out of our metaphysics and ethical conclusions when things are more complex uh, than doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that it's easy for people nowadays to immediately ask that sort of question because it's because it's it has become a politicized issue. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if before we could have called it a politicized issue because. Uh, I don't know if there were, there was any society with a legal system, uh, I don't know, some decades ago throughout the globe where abortion was straight out legal. So, uh, I mean, but anyway, it's politicized now and it's very easy whenever people talk about anything related to pregnancy, even if it's the metaphysics of it, to then connect to the 
to the ethics also because uh, in the debate itself people <coughs> sometimes want to answer questions like okay so is the fetus uh, are the, are the fetus or the embryo alive is it not or is it a person is it not or i mean stuff like that so that that's already on the metaphysical side of the things more i guess uh, yeah. Anyway, um, what is the difference metaphysically between fetuses and neonates? Um, so, this is more biology, I think, than metaphysics. But my understanding is that a fetus is uh, the entity that is being gestated, whereas so it has a, a certain physiology of being gestated whereas a neonate is what we call the entity once it's been born so a baby um so at the you know if one is uh gives birth to a premature baby we'll call that baby the a neonate if it's then needs to be incubated say to bring it to a healthy state um so yeah i think for me the difference between fetus and neonate is whether it's got a physiology of being um gestated still or whether it has a certain physiology once it's been born where being born is more than just a change of environment from inside a womb to outside a womb <laughs> But is there something special metaphysically about birth? Yeah, I think that it's, it is special in that it is more than this change of environment. It's not just a change of location for the entity that um, is a fetus because it's inside and then just becomes a neonate once it's outside. Um, it's m because of the intertwinement between the fetus and gestator, especially if you consider the fetus to be a part of the gestator, um, then there's a lot more going on in birth than just um, something going from the inside to going from, from, from the inside to the outside. There's a, a huge change in the physiology um, between that of a fetus and that of a neonate. Um, so what, there's an analogy that's used in the literature by those who are more in favour of uh, thinking that a gestator is m more of a container rather than having a fetus as a part. And they describe uh, birth um, or pregnancy as like there being a tub of yoghurt in your fridge. And then you can just move that tub of yogurt from inside of your fridge to outside of your fridge. It's just a change of location and it's inside and not connected in, in any way. And I think that that analogy is really unhelpful <laughs> for describing pregnancy and birth because it's just wildly overly simplistic and disconnected. Mm -hmm. um... 
I mean, apart from abortion and those, those more politicized questions, uh, are there any aspects of the ethics of pregnancy which you are interested in and perhaps you connect the metaphysics with the ethics or not so much? Yeah, so I've written about the connection between the metaphysics of pregnancy and surrogacy, because actually I think that um, unlike abortion, there is more of a direct connection between this work and the ethics of surrogacy. That's also politicised. I think everything <laughs> to do with pregnancy really yeah. is politicised. You can't escape the, the politics of the situation um, and trying to do the work void of the politics of the situation would be missing a large picture of it. Um, but with surrogacy, the way that um, the surrogate is described in policy, say in the UK at least, um, but I think also more widely internationally, is that a surrogate is someone who gestates for someone else and in doing so what they are gestating is a, the product for someone else um, so for the intended parent or parents um, and sometimes with because you can have surrogate arrangements in different ways but sometimes um, a surrogate will be implanted they'll have an implanted fertilized egg um an implanted egg in into their womb and then they will do the gestation and then that is kind of given back <laughs> to whoever the egg was part of before um and i think this this understanding of the gestator um sorry of the surrogate as providing this service of um, gestation um, considers the surrogate to be some, somewhat of a container that can just be utilised um, like the fridge. <laughs> um, just someone else's yogurt can go in the fridge, you can keep it cold um, until you're ready to eat it and then you can take it back out and the other person can have it, you know. And I think that, that sort of... Um, perception is is the one that you get when when you consider how surrogacy works um, legally and um, actually I think that if you consider a different metaphysical view of pregnancy namely if you consider the greater connection and intertwinement and complexity between the fetus and the gestator um, and consider maybe the fetus to be a part of the gestator then you, surrogacy looks very different because then the fetus is a part of the surrogate. It's not someone else's product that can just be put in someone and taken out again. Um, it's their own gestational produce. It's the surrogate's fetus. It is their body part. And so then the legality of that um, and the policies around that make surrogacy look a little bit more like adoption at birth um, with the transfer of parental rights um, because the the fetus is the gestators the surrogates completely in virtue of it being a part of their body um, 
which then goes through an adoption process at birth. So I think that's how metaphysics of pregnancy can can impact on surrogacy, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, technologies related to pregnancy and how they might bring rise to new metaphysical questions. So first of all, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, what are ectogenitive and ectogestative technologies? I mean, what distinguishes them and what are the sorts of questions that they bring to the table? Yeah, thank you. Now, you, you pronounce them perfectly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I always find them quite a tongue twister as well. And actually, that distinction is thanks to work done by Elsaline Kingma. Um, and so there's a way of thinking about when uh, we talk about ectogenesis, sometimes um, we have this idea that it's just... Um, any uh, reproduction, I suppose, that occurs outside of the body. So doing that work outside. But there are different technologies that do that in different ways. So at the moment, we already have some partial ectogenitive technologies um, like IVF and incubation. Those are both occur outside of the body. Um, but they are to be distinguished to uh, from ectogestative technologies, which uh, that where the difference lies on uh, relies on the distinction that I, we talked about earlier between fetuses and neonates. So a neonate um, would be supported in ectogenetive technologies like incubation you incubate neonates but if you're gestating a fetus outside of the body um, so where there's a physiology of a fetus that's being supported then that sort of technology is ectogestative Um, so yes it really depends on whether the technology is supporting the neonate physiology uh, which is ectogenetic or when a technology is supporting fetus physiology, which is ectogestative. Um, and actually, we do, there have been recent, very in the last few years, recent developments in um, assisted reproductive technologies um, that have been ectogestative. Um, so whilst ectogenetive technologies are well known and not so controversial the ectogestative ones are more so um because it's that it's that gestational period that's you know very important um and you can't do you can't do a uh, a reproduction without the gestation you can't just have ectogenetic technologies working alone that only works at the very beginning or at the very end you have this whole middle period of gestation and um, the recent development in the technology, um, it was published in a, in a Nature report, I think in 2017, um, with fetal lambs being gestated outside of uh, the gestating sheep. <laughs> um, and that's at a certain time of their development, were able to be taken outside 
and put into ectogestative technologies to gestate um, before then going into ectogenetive technologies, which supports them, the lamb, not as a fetal lamb, but as a neonate, um, whatever the terminology would be for a lamb. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the distinction, um, mostly depending on what it is you're supporting, if you're supporting a neonate or a fetus. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, th does this connect to artificial womb technologies? Yeah, massively, because I think the, the term artificial womb technologies is kind of vague and ambiguous as to whether the artificial womb technology is ectogenetive or ectogestative. Okay. I think uh, sometimes um, when the media talks about artificial wombs, it's because the assumption is that all that is all that goes on in pregnancy in gestation is this containment within a womb. And so if you can reproduce, if you like, the womb, if you can have an artificial womb, then you've got everything you need to um, artificially reproduce. But um, as you can probably tell, I don't think that's the case. There is, I think there is more to pregnancy and to gestation than just providing the housing of a womb. Um, what we also need is not just an artificial womb, but artificial placenta, artificial um, amniotic fluid, um, all of these things. It's just to depend solely on the womb is maybe to depend solely on ectogenetic technologies, which is just um, providing that sort of environment, that containment, um, rather than doing the gestational work um, of supporting a fetus. So yeah, I think it does connect very much with the with people's usage of this term artificial womb technology. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, does that also raise questions surrounding uh, if the fetus is part of something or someone or something like that? Yeah. So I I've wondered in what um, direction um, the entailment goes. So if we have a metaphysics of pregnancy that shows that the fetus is part of the gestator, does that then carry over to um, the artificial mm. version where yeah. the fetus becomes a part of the technology that is gestating it? Um, or the other direction of entailment is um, that if we can see in our artificial versions that there is no parthood connection between the fetus and the technology. Is that in itself evidence that there is no parthood connection in general between the fetus and what is gestating the fetus or who is gestating the fetus? Um, so, yeah, whether we can extrapolate from our metaphysics to our tech or from our tech to our metaphysics or whether the tech distorts 
um, the more, and I use this word cautiously, natural <laughs> um, relationship between fetus and gestator or illuminates it. Again, this question of distortion and illumination, like when we were speaking about um, love, whether that the process of loving someone illuminates what they're really like or <laughs> distorts what they're really like. Um, I think the, the same sort of question arises for um assisted reproductive technologies um whether those technologies illuminate the metaphysical situation between the fetus and gestator or whether they're distorting um what's going on more naturally uh well so dr finn before we go would you like to mention where people can find you on the internet yeah sure um so i don't have social media per se um but you can find my work on my website which has lots of links um to uh other play other resources so it links to my academia page where i have my papers and also my phil people profile um and that contains all of my publications too um, so my website is www.sukifin.com so just my name um, and also on the website you'll find links to my music because I'm also a musician so if you mm. fancy listen to, listening to some of that um, and a lot of my work is also coming out in the form of a book um, that's being published with Icon um, this autumn autumn 2022 um, and that's called What's in a Donut Hole and Other Philosophical Food for Thought. So it goes through lots and lots of analogies. As you can tell, I love an analogy. Um, so lots of analogies between philosophical paradoxes and food that might demonstrate that pu puzzle or paradox in a more concrete, uh, digestible way. <laughs> Excuse the pun. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where my work is at the moment okay very well so thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show it's been a real pleasure to talk to you thank you it's been a real pleasure for me too cheers hi guys thank you for watching this interview until the end if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like hit the subscription button all of those things you already know and please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkwi, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bulut, Nathan Nguyen, 
Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Puntar, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliz, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC, My Producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardus France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.